This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and as my regular co-host Flick Ford is on leave for a couple of months, you'll be hearing a glittering array of guest hosts, a murderer's row, if you will, joining me for our May and June shows. So this week, I'm delighted to be joined once again through the magic of Zoom. Too lazy to come in here. Uh... (laughs) For the fourth in our ongoing retro spotlight celebrating significant anniversaries um, on films celebrating significant anniversaries. I am joined by writer, critic and author of books on the film's second seconds and Bride of Frankenstein, Emma Westwood. Hello, Paul. I was laughing before because, um, yeah, we're too lazy to come in. It's true. <laughs> COVID has done this to us. We can now Zoom everywhere to rather make... than me Zoom from East St Kilda to Brunswick. and and uh i'm also joined by uh author film historian and um author of books on the films cujo christine and one of the films we'll be discussing tonight lee gambin hello paul how are you hello hey (laughs) thank you for having me on what am i talking about uh, (laughs) lovely uh to have you both join us so as is our recent tradition whenever emma and lee join me we'll be hopping into the wayback machine and spotlighting a trio of films turning 40 this year three great films from 1981 that you can rent or stream from home first we will make the ill-advised decision to sneak into a creepy carnival and stay overnight in director toby hooper's the fun house then we'll follow Dee Wallace into an underground net- network of werewolves in Joe Dante's The Howling. And finally, we'll hit the road with Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis and witness a murder in uh, Richard Franklin's Road Games. Now, before we hop into our reviews of our trio of films turning 40 this year, we felt it might be worth just giving a quick snapshot into what cinema in 1981 looked like. The 1970s were over. The previous year, 1980 had hammered the final nails into cinema's finest decade, bookended by the box office domination of The Empire Strikes Back, the kind of big-budget space adventure franchise that continues to rule the theatrical roost to this very day, and the abject box office failure of Michael Cimino's Western Heaven's Gate, which virtually bankrupted its studio, United Artists, and ensured that the era of studio bosses putting blind faith in visionary directors was well and truly over. 
But even at the best of times, it takes Hollywood a good two or three years to turn the truck around. So cinemas in 1981 were still getting the final remnants of the so-called New Hollywood, greenlit in the late 70s. Big-budget films on epic canvases, such as Warren Beatty's political revolutionary story Reds, Brian De Palma's conspiracy thriller Blowout, John Borman's Arthurian adventure uh, Excalibur, Sidney Lumet's police corruption drama Prince of the City, and Milos Forman's turn-of-this-century racial drama Ragtime. But as late 70s genre directors like uh, Wes Craven, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg, George A. Romero, Walter Hill, Toby Hooper and Joe Dante continued to advance their careers into the new decade with films like uh, Deadly Blessing, Escape from New York, Scanners, uh, Knight Riders, Southern Comfort and two of the films we'll be discussing later, 1981 saw an unusual amount of first or second features from filmmakers who had come to shape the decade ahead. Michael Mann's Thief, Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead, Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery's The Loveless, Oliver Stone's The Hand, and Hugh Hudson's Best Picture Oscar-winning Chariots of Fire. Sadly, writer-director Steve Gordon, who burst on the scene as a director with one of the year's biggest hits, the Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli starring romantic comedy Arthur, wouldn't get a chance to follow in their footsteps, passing away just a year later of a heart attack at age 44. 1981 was also a year not shy of cult classics, with Abel Ferrara's roaring rape-revenge classic Ms. 45, Andre Solovsky's uh, bracing Possession, Frank Perry's Joan Crawford Takedown Mummy Dearest, John Waters's Polyester, Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried, Lucio Fulci's Double Shot of the House by the Cemetery and the Beyond, and Noel Marshall's frankly insane Living with Lions drama Raw, all debuting this year. Uh, Peter Hyams remade High Noon in Space as Outland, and John Landis and Rick Baker pushed makeup effects and the horror comedy to a new level with their masterpiece An American Wealth in London. The biggest hit of 1981 by Miles was Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, which introduced Indiana Jones to audiences and once and for all confirmed Harrison Ford's stardom outside of Star Wars. The Fonders reunited on screen for Mark Rydell's On Golden Pond. Ivan Reitman unleashed Bill Murray upon the army in Stripes. Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise and director Hal Needham raced an all-star cast around America in the Cannibal Run and Alan Alda looked to life beyond mashed by writing, directing and starring in the surprise smash romantic comedy The Four Seasons. Uh, we had Superman 2, 007, and for your eyes only, The Great Muppet Caper, Friday the 13th Part 2, Halloween 2, Mad Max 2, which under its US title of The Road Warrior became the highest grossing Australian film of all time and made Mel Gibson an international superstar. Outside of Indiana Jones and Superman, we had fantasy and, and spectacle in the form of Time Bandits, Clash of the Titans, and Heavy Metal, while slashes began to flood cinemas. With The Burning, The Fan, Happy Birthday to Me, Bloody Birthday, Mad Men, Night School, Final Exam and Graduation Day, all uh, and so many more. And horror sci-fi hybrids even gave us a demonoid and an inseminoid. Um, female directors were sadly still few and far between, but gun music video director Penelope Spheris launched her iconic trilogy of music documentaries with The Decline of Western Civilization Part 1, which took us inside the LA punk scene. And finally, outside of America, Jean-Jacques Benix uh, made his debut with the visually stunning romantic action thriller Diva, which spearheaded the short-lived but hugely influential cinema du Luc movement. Francois Truffaut gave us the underrated um, A Woman Next Door. Louis Malle came to America with My Dinner with Andre. Canadian Bob Clark scored a massive hit with the teen sex comedy Porky's. Brazil's Hector Babenco and Germany's Uli Idel pushed boundaries with Pixote and the Christian F., and Hungarian Istvan Zabo remixed Faust for Nazi Germany in Mephisto. 
Emma and Lee, do you, either of you have any thoughts about the films of uh, 1981 before we jump into our three? Did we mention for your eyes only? We did briefly. Oh, we did. Okay, I didn't. I didn't hear that. It's the rush of sequels, <laughs> yeah. which, which is another signal towards the future. I think that um, listening to that list is exhausting. I, I think I need to lie down after that. Oh, <laughs> you really outdid yourself. It, it is. It is a year where horror kind of shines. Must admit. Yeah, it was very much the horror. The, the slasher boom was very much in evidence. At this point. Yeah, I just love that wonderful diversity. But also, I think it's interesting, yeah, we talk about the slasher boom. Um, they're, to me, like really nice comforting movies. They're like warm blankets. One of the most grim films of that year, I think you missed, Paul, which is fine, you're forgiven. You, you gave us a list of you know, 500 films. But the most grim to me would be um, uh, Pennies from Heaven. Oh, um, yes, Herbert Peters. Peters, which, you know, is seriously a once-a-year watch for me. It's enough. <laughs> it's a masterpiece that's so miserable. Um, and that's a musical, you know what I mean? That's really miserable and, and grim. But all those wonderful slasher films of that period, just stunning. When you were listing them, I was, like, thinking of all the brilliant, iconic poster art. Yes. But um, so it's interesting when we come to talking about The Howling, how the campaign for The Howling was kind of trying to play into the fact that it might be a slasher mm. film, not a werewolf movie, because werewolves can, were considered old hat. But, yeah, really amazing year. I love that list that you just spilled out there, Paul. Beautiful stuff. And I love that uh, I love that night school, final exam and graduation day sounds like a track. It almost sounds like a trilogy. <laughs> Go to night school, take your final exam and have graduation day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> listeners, please join us on the couch for our first film of the evening. <laughs> To face the challenge down to the monster. Who is mad enough to enter that world of darkness? I just had the greatest idea. Let's spend the night. What? In the fun house. Yeah, that's not the greatest idea. The fun house was the fourth feature film directed by Toby Hooper. Rebellious teen Amy, Elizabeth Berridge, defies her parents by going to a trashy carnival that is pulled into town. In tow are her boyfriend Buzz and their friends Liz and Richie. Thinking it would be fun to spend the night in the campy funhouse horror ride, the teens witness a murder by a deformed worker wearing a mask. Locked in, Amy and her friends must evade the murderous carnival workers and escape before it leaves town the next day. Emma, as this was your pick for this evening, what is it about the funhouse that makes you feel alive, alive, alive? I love that there's a character called Buzz. I mean, really. <laughs> Perfect. Um, the funhouse uh, is uh, one of those horrors that I absolutely love, but it is sort of maligned in some ways. Uh, I know a lot of people who really love horror who do not love Funhouse for or the Funhouse. Let's be um, let's get the title for it. Uh, for some reason, and, and they've never really been able to explain it to me. I don't know whether it's because it doesn't work for them in Toby Hooper's um, oeuvre or something. But for me, it's actually an incredibly smart and enlightening horror film. It's specifically for what was going on at the time. So we just talked about this whole, like we're right in the, the middle of the, the slasher period at this stage where slasher movies were being um, rolled out one after the other. And um, the amazing thing about Funhouse, I think, was that 
even at that stage, it was able to um, riff on um, slasher films in a kind of almost revisionist way. It, it, it sort of it played on the tropes. Um, it played to fans of horror movies in really smart ways and um, and it, it played with your expectations of what would happen in a slasher film. Like we have an opening scene in it that's basically it was classic slasher, which is, you know, from a, um, the, the killer's POV or who we assume the killer's POV going into a room um, and, and, you know, um, going into the bathroom and pulling back the bath curtain to attack someone. Uh, and it, it kind of turns that a little bit on its head. Um, and that's right at the start. It makes, it shows you what it's trying to be. And directly and it, lifts from two movies at that point as well. Yeah, yeah. Halloween. <laughs> it's amazing that, like, you know, the slasher film, you know, obviously we could argue the slasher film goes way back. You know, the body count film goes way back to the 30s with something like 13 women. But the slasher film sort of starts to really happen with Halloween, right? And that's only a few years before... Um, the funhouse and it's already massively influential in the way the aesthetic of the opening but also i think you mentioned early in the intro um paul uh, bloody birthday and that uh, was marketed as a slasher film and it's an evil kid movie mm. uh you know so it's kind of like you say emma like a revisionist take on the you know body count thing but it's an evil kid film but a trilogy of horrible children you know it's not like a masked killer <laughs> but yeah i love that opening in the funhouse by the way it's beautiful and the way that the uh, funhouse is kind of like a movie in two parts as well. So it's the sort of the, the the carnival part, which is just them really wandering around the carnival and presenting all these the freaks, the freakish personalities um, who are on show and who, who are doing their thing that they do every night. That's their work. That's their job. And then we have that amazing crane shot. And this is also Toby Hooper's first film that he worked in Cinemascope, right? Mm. So the the DOP has a, you know, a fantastic time doing this film, but it is a very difficult film to um, do in Cinemascope because it's so dark and it requires a lot of light in order to, to effectively, um, well, to actually get some definition in the, <laughs> it, on the screen. Um, so it's a- Andrew Lovax, I think uh, his name is. Andrew, the- Andrew Laszlo. Laszlo, Laszlo, that's it. Um, who was at the DOP, and he went on to so he did Southern Comfort um, as Same well. Year. Yeah, First Blood is another one in Inner Space that he did. But oh. um, there's this scene where you get this massive crane, which apparently was like this sort of three level telescopic crane that they um, they had as a bit of a toy on this set. And it's the transition into when the carnival closes and the kids, well, the 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 little the teenagers, the little clip we got, decide to um, stay in because it's going to be fun. Let's stay in the haunted house, Woo-hoo! on the haunted ride, and of course everything goes terribly wrong. But then that second part of the film is where we get to see them, and they're also, you know, the good girl, the jock the slut, you know, those kind of tropes that play out in in um, in slasher films. Um, we get to see them then watching the carnival um, employees, the carnies, when they don't realise they're performing, but it's a performance of another kind and it's a fantastic performance. 
like this whole little, um, their little stories, their little backstories of their relationships and these sort of little things that go on, you know, um, like the, the anomaly, I think um, Toby Hooper described the monster of this. Now it's sort of arguable who is the monster, <laughs> but um, there is a, a, a creature of sorts let's say, uh, a semi-human creature. Mm. Or no, that's unfair. It's it, He's more of a freak in the carnival, the old-fashioned carnival mm. freak way, which is, you know, very much frowned upon in it now. And he wears um, a Frankenstein. But also looks like no human ever looked ever. <laughs> no, no. Well, this is a... Tony Hooper actually said, and I think this is a really interesting insight into the film, there's, you see that there's that kind of that mutated cow. They actually mm. found a mutated cow. They put out a call for strange um, animals to appear in this film and they got this crazy-looking sort of three-nosed cow or something. Uh, or it's a, it's a cow that's kind of got strangely like a cleft mitten. Yeah, cleft yeah, it's like an airlip, yeah. But, uh, which I've never seen before on a cow. Anyway. The idea is, he said, the insinuation is, and you don't necessarily pick up on this, but when you do, it makes this feel very interesting, that the cow is actually the mother right. of the anomaly, of the, the beast in it. So, mm. But this film really, look, this plays so beautifully to fans, movie fans, not just horror fans, because it constantly riffs on, you see little tells the whole way through that are, um, you know, referring to other movies, they got to have the Frankenstein mask because Universal were involved in the production, so we got free licensing with mm. that. But otherwise, this was a big um, this was a big budget film for Toby Hooper. His budgets were gradually going up at this stage, um, but still, they did things like the child who was who's an interesting character himself, the brother, who you kind of feel is being um, running through this film almost like a little B story. He's sort of, he's another, it's very voyeuristic, this film. There's like voyeurism on voyeurism on voyeurism and he's another one that's watching and you kind of think he's going to be the saviour. But he's just really this creepy kid, you know. His final scene is terrific. Yeah, I don't I don't actually want to give spoilers. No, I'm not going to say what he does, but it, it was hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah, and this film's like, you know, 40 years old. Uh, I know that, you know, there's a chance, there's every chance people have seen it. But then again, it is one of the films from that, that year that I think there's still, there are a lot of people out there who would do very, do very well by themselves to watch, to watch this film. It's all shot... Toby Hooper apparently he was a really huge fan of the um, Nightmare, the Edmund Goulding's Nightmare Alley, mm. which um, starred Tyron Powell, and he grew up loving that film and he wanted to do a carnival film. And I actually think that this film, Alejandro Jodorowsky's um, Santa Sangre aside, is probably one of the best depictions of a carnival I've ever come across. Mm. And not just because of visually and the performers and it's shot so gorgeously, it just looks sumptuous, but also the sound. It's just layers of sound and people talking and all those kind of those, that sort of layer upon layer of sound that you get at a carnival. And he does it in this film so beautifully. Do you have, it's scary. It's really, really freaking scary. <laughs> do you have thoughts on this? Uh, quick thoughts on this, Lee? 
Yeah, I love it. Um, I'm sort of disappointed I never asked um, Sylvia Miles about it. Um, I contacted her and um, spoke with her and got her to do a video for um, the Sentinel. So she had a lot of stuff to say about the Sentinel. But I never really followed up with something like the Funhouse. But I know Miles Shapen, the actor who's wonderful. I've been in touch with him a lot um, in the past for coverage on hair um, and uh, Bless the Beasts and Children. But he's in it. He's one of the kids that um, Emma's talking about and he spoke really highly of it love Toby Hooper etc but I love the film aesthetically it's beautiful I think it's part of Toby Hooper's um uh, well a good example of how versatile a director Toby Hooper was I think people sort of don't think of that or think you know consider that if you look at the aesthetic and style of something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre compared to his brilliant adaptation of Salem's Lot for television like they're totally vastly different films and then The Fun House is another extension of his work I feel like this, The Fun House is probably most um, uh, aesthetically linked or relative to something like Eaten Alive because Eaten Alive has a kind of really cartoony, uh, you know, you know, vivid colours and it's really lush looking. It looks like, a, you know, a cartoon. Um, and this one's kind of got the same sort of style. And I love its energy and its swift storytelling. And the characterizations, the kids are really likeable, you know. Um, and the monster's beautiful. I love him. And the, and the pathos there and, you know, the tenderness and its tribute to Frankenstein. I think it's a, a really lovingly made film. Yeah, I, I was. I have to admit, Em, I was one of those people that was wildly underwhelmed by this film on two previous viewings. I remember I once called it the dumbest episode of Scooby Doo ever, but I did. But but I found myself watching it this time though. I found myself rather taken in by its sort of straightforward spook house feel, and it's and I think and there's something about the transfer as well. Um, this time, I think the the one that's on YouTube Movies that's available to rent at the moment. I think it's the Scream Factory transfer from 2012. And the colours on this film, and mm. the visual depth, and the um, and the set design all popped in a way I hadn't that hadn't been apparent before. And yeah, I got really sucked into it this time. And I, I love that the um, Kevin Conway is the bar- plays three roles. There's like three different Barkers, <laughs> and they're all the same guy. Magnificent. And you know, the first time I didn't even pick that up. Yeah. They were all so different. But he's like the heartbeat of this film. I love the way this film, like you said, um, Paul, I think you do have to, well, you don't have to. I loved it as soon as I saw it. But some people do have to see it a few times. I think it's beautifully written. It's really beautifully written. Yeah, I kind of find it, I find it sort of straightforward and very kind of old-fashioned in a way, but it's kind of cool. But it is, yeah, it does have this sort of almost Nightmare Alley meets slasher film kind of feel. It is very, as like we've been saying, it's got one foot in the old, one foot in the new, and that's a very cool thing about it. Um, so if Emma, you... I sense a monograph coming up about <laughs> Oh, God, you're committing me to another one. <laughs> Come on, you've got to catch up to me. I've done three of them. You're on two. Oh, Come oh, on. I'm never going to compete with you, Lee. That's just tiring. But uh, so, Paul, you're a convert. Have we I am a convert. I am a convert. I'm up to. I'm up to light like now. Yeah, I do. I do enjoy this. I had a real. I had fun. I had. I found the cows quite upsetting. Um, no, but that is that is sad because they are actual, you know, animals. Yeah, exactly. It's not makeup. It's you know, it's 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 real cows that were were found. But yeah, I I think this is yeah, I think this is a creepy fun and and yeah, the and the the lighting and the set design makes the most out of the creepy. I, I just find carnivals creepy anyway, and it makes the most of all of that um, set design with the dolls and everything else. 
Uh, so, if you want to venture into the Fun House,、um, you can、uh, gra- rent or buy it now on YouTube Movies and、uh, Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Emma Westwood, Lee Gammon, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And、uh, a quick shout out to、uh, to Lee's canine son Buddy and Emma's、uh, feline daughter Scout, who both made their appearances on the Zoom screen just then. Now, join us in the time machine as we head back to 1981 for our second film of the evening. But you're a different Karen. I watch you on TV. And I know how good I can make you feel. I'm gonna light up your whole body, Karen. Turn around, now, Karen. I want to give you something. The Howling was the third feature film directed by Joe Dante. After she is traumatized by a bizarre and near-fatal encounter with a monstrous serial killer, TV investigative news reporter Karen White, D. Wallace, is sent to a remote rehabilitation centre known as the Colony, which seems supportive and benign at first, but whose inhabitants may not be all that they seem. Lee, you know a thing or two about this film, given you've written an entire book on it called *The Howling: Studies in the Horror Film*, now available online via Centipede Press or and all good online bookstores. But what is it about this film that lights up your whole body? So I do want a bit of a brief history of when I first saw it. Yes. Yeah, called Child Channel Nine.、Um, <laughs> it screened,、uh, and I was hooked straight away. So I was obsessed with the fact that. It was about a community of werewolves. So everything before that I'd seen was generally a rogue werewolf, so the Wolfman, Curse of the Werewolf, etc. So werewolves are probably my favourite movie monster of the sort of you know the main canon of movie monsters, your vampires or zombies or whatever. Werewolves are probably my favourite. I think they're a little bit unsung or you know a bit undervalued. So watching a whole community of werewolves really lit me up. I guess lit up my senses and just the idea of the the community of them having their all varied politics and their own.、Ideas. Ideas and how they interacted with one another—it just resonated for, with me for some reason. I became obsessed and would draw them as a kid, and I just got you know hooked by this concept.、Um, and then you know, as I got older, did as much research as I could on this film over and over again, and found you know essays here and there. And、um, you know, finally, by the end of you know. Uh, you know, I guess it cul- culminated into me doing this book, this massive sort of monograph on the film by interviewing everyone involved,、um, and you know, sourcing all these images and etc. But yeah, I love the whole film. I think it's a perfect film.、Um, the script by John Sayles and Terence Hinch Winkler is magnificent. It's very different to the novel.、Um, there's a, the essence of the novel is there, but it's very different. And just the brilliance of it, the sharp sort of commentary it has, and what it says about、um, uh, touch me therapy fads of the period, what it says about the media. 
what it says about duality, the beast in all of us, what it says about psychology and pop psychology. Um, it sort of t- uh, toys with tropes of, um, you know, the, the, the newspaper, sorry, the news anchor woman in peril um, syndrome, which was a common um, used theme in horror. Um, it does a lot about um, uh, sex and sexuality, um, about repression, about sort of different psychiatric techniques and psychology techniques such as Est and Primal Scream and um, all that sort of stuff. And these werewolves living in this, you know, Esalen community sort of trying to understand their werewolfery, <laughs> their lycanthropy um, and trying to channel it. Um, once again, yeah, the politics of the, the film, like all these different werewolves having different ideas of what they should be doing. Um, and just the script um, being so loaded with all this stuff, but then having this really straightforward um, premise. You know, here's this woman who is a journalist who deals with this uh, trauma that comes full circle, which is brilliant, such a smart piece in the writing, um, and then is sent to this colony by a well-meaning doctor and having to sort of fight and resist the, um, I guess, the urge or the or the threat of becoming one of the werewolves. Um, uh, clearly, it doesn't work out for her. But, um, yeah, it's a really smart, savvy script and film, and also just the way it looks. The aesthetic is beautiful. The John Horror cinematography, he sort of modelled it on Chinese, um, sorry, Japanese paintings. Um, you have all these wonderful tributes to various things, where it's, whether it's um, horror film cinema or werewolf cinema in general or cartoons um, or, you know, all that kind of stuff that's loaded in, you know, every Joe Dante film, which is, you know, he's a master a filmmaker and someone who loves to reference a whole bunch of pop culture um the designs of the werewolves you know um rob Bettine's work and greg canham's work and all these wonderful makeup artists who worked on it like Gigi williams it was so great to see Gigi williams nominated for an oscar this year i was like i had to write to her straight away and go oh my god you know roger corman school you know there you are <laughs> at the oscars good um and also margaret prentice all these people who are sort of who don't get talked about um, in the world of makeup. But yeah, the designs by Rod Bettine are just beautiful. The elongated snout on a werewolf always made me excited hmm. rather than the sort of flat nose that Lon Chaney used to have, which is beautiful as well. But just the whole idea of the werewolf morphing into something that looks more like an actual wolf, like a timber wolf or whatever. Um, and just the metamorphosis sequence. Of course, people sort of talk about the howling and they always go straight to what the um, main transformation sequence looks like. Uh, the Eddie Quist, uh, the Rod Picardo transformation i love it i think it's a wonderful literal showstopper um it sort of reads like a massive big number you know yes. uh, with with d wallace as a captive audience uh in there also the performance but you know and that's great that people talk about the makeup effects of course they're magnificent but the film as a whole is magnificent um what i've sort of touched on uh, as far as what the writing does and what it says but also the performances i think they're just magnificent um each each performance is brilliant and so sharply realized especially notably the women so we've got d wallace who we all know is magnificent but also all the other women so you've got um margaret um impert margie impert who plays um donna who's like another we- one of the werewolves who's kind of like a hippie kind of new age freak werewolf um you know who conceals her werewolfism probably the best out of a lot um then you've got uh, elizabeth brooks who plays um the sort of fiery sexy werewolf Marsha quist um who has this great design just kind of hot, it's kind of like a little bit um native american and snm like it's just really interesting 
interesting combo. Um, and then you've got, uh, and her performance is wonderful, and she died sadly quite young. And then you've got um, Belinda Belaski as, uh, you know, another uh, journalist um, who works with Dee Wallace's character and is a confidant and friend. And her performance is beautiful. It's like a quintessential late 70s, early 80s, um, second banana female lead role, like just a perfect, perfect performance. And the men in the film are wonderful as well. You've got, you know, wonderful character actors like John Carradine, who was in everything, um, Patrick McNee, who's terrific as the sort of well-meaning, well-intended doctor. He's very similar to, say, Dr. Saperstein and Rosemary's Baby, that kind of, you know, fatherly kind of figure to this vulnerable blonde woman. Um, and then you've got people like Robert Picardo, who shows up in a lot of Joe Dante movies as Eddie Quist and gets to really revel in playing this, you know, uh, sexually deviant werewolf Eddie Quist, who's a wonderful, wonderful movie monster that everyone should worship. Um, and then you've got my friend Don McLeod, who's just brilliant as the younger sibling of the Quist werewolf um, siblings, the trio, Marsha, Eddie and TC. And he's kind of most, the most probably elemental, um, the most kind of, you know, you, you look at him, you go, all right, you're a werewolf <laughs> with his sheepskin co- costuming and just brilliant. <laughs> Former. And he's a great actor. He, he did a really interesting book recently about his career as a uh, Hollywood gorilla. He played apes throughout a whole bunch of movies <laughs> and TV shows, etc. But he's really beautiful in this performance because he sort of does the, the wolf sort of, um, you know, uh, characteristics and, and, and body sort of... Mm. Um, stuff really well and then, yeah everyone in the, it's great that uh, you know slim pickens and noble william and all these wonderful people in it um you know the screenwriter himself john sales pops up as the morgue uh, attended but i just think the whole film is really smart it's it's sharp it's edited beautifully by mark goldblatt the score by uh peter donaggio is just gorgeous um i mentioned the aesthetic john horror cinematography just beautiful and just what it sort of says about a whole range of things i think it's a very smart savvy film it's one of the best kind of early 80s horror movies where it's a swiftly told well-mounted really economically told uh, story but so much is there to unlock and unpack and i think the best films of that period do that tell the story straightforwardly you know do something with a straight simple premise and then when you deliver it you can have you know so much to tell to, t- to talk about i think that's what the howling does um so successfully i um i'm i'm, I'm with you on that lee I, I i really enjoy films that are Simple. I call them simply complex. Yeah. They just they they present. They go with something that's really straightforward or it really um, a simple premise, um, and then they do something really smart with it. And I think that um, what's really interesting about the howling is um, the way it's actually structured because that first scene and like the first act um, of. It's almost got like, I know like often we've been talking about slashes, the way slashes will have a sort of horror scene at the start. It's not quite like that in The the Howling. It's more like it's a third act right at the start. Like Mm. we've almost come into the end of a different film and and that's played out and we're just, we're not given a lot of context. We have to sort of work it out. And it's a really, really impactful way to start a movie. You know? There's so much going on straight away in the first moments. Like we get, we understand all the characters. I love Kevin um, McCarthy's character <laughs> as like, you know, the joke. guy that just wants the good rating. So you know, it's, it owes a lot to things like Paddy Chayefsky's network. Um, yeah, it's got yeah. a lot going on in there, and also John Sayles' influence of the suicide of Christine Chubbuck. Um, so you know, like D. Wallace morphing into a whale at the end and getting gunned down by Dennis Dugan, another great performer in that, known for his work as a director of comedies like problem child and stuff but does this great film 
But um, that kind of is a direct reference to Christine Chubbuck's um, suicide mm. on, on camera, all that sort of stuff. But you're right, Emma, the opening is like this really um, intricate and intricately told opening that's right in there. You're right in there with Dee Wallace's character. You follow her journey. She's got an incredibly wonderful arc. Dee's, always, Dee's a good friend of mine and she's always said that she always loved horror because horror allows her to play these women with these incredible arcs um, who are able to do a whole range of things and tap into all these different you know, emotions and play out all these arts, play out all these emotions on screen. But also um, the opening is very much like kind of like a, a thriller or like, you know, what was happening at the time in television a lot a lot as well. So like all, the, you know, the Rockford uh, Files and all those sort I, of shows. I that were really felt like that. felt like something more akin to something like cruising at the start. Right. Like this sort of seedy LA and going into a porn theater and having someone yeah. behind you and speaking. And her braha as the porno... Um, Knew I shouldn't have let a broad in here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, great stuff, and just the lighting, and just and the difference between the kind of you know Los Angeles urban jungle compared to the beautiful picturesque, you know, um, mostly uh, Memphisino and Griffith Park for the colony, you know. So just having you know California as a natural sort of um, Mm. in the natural world compared to like the urban jungle of the CD. LA, like that comparison is really interesting. Mm. And then just the world of ru- the news, like reporting supposed truth, um, you know, really interesting stuff. I, yeah, this this is a strange beast of a film for me. I always feel like it's two films running parallel alongside each other, occasion- dovetailing and occasionally crashing into one another. Um, I, like, you've kind of got this, you know, the lycanthropic serial killer movie and the reporters investigating that. And then you've got the, the self-help encounter group there you know thread mm. um and i i feel like the the encounter group thread is is definitely a big a ripe and deserving target for biting satire and there's a lot here um but i tended to like the other plot more i love i wanted a whole movie about belinda belaski and dennis dugan i love their relationship i love them like every scene with them is a delight and i yeah, I was sort of less interested in in D. Wallace and Christopher Stone's marriage. I like, I, I like, I like, I like Karen as a character, but the marriage was the less interesting stuff. And I thought, yeah, the, the I, I don't know, I, and I, I just sort of, yeah, I, this film I've always liked, but I've never quite loved it. And how I, dare I, you. I, no, I know how dare I. I've, like, Have you read Lee's book? I, I should. I feel like yeah, I, I that would but the, I think um, uh, a lot of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor simply for time mm. was, is really interesting to me, and it's all the therapy stuff. So there's a lot of great scenes with group therapy with the werewolves. Yeah. Um, where like, and I think the, the another issue was it probably led on too much that D. Wallace's character would be like kind of cluing you know getting a bit of a clue that these people aren't exactly what they seem mm. so these scenes were cut so there's a great scene where the donna character talks about you know stru- you know embracing her werewolf nature mm. um and john carradine's character sort of talking about how um his werewolfery actually helps him dealing with old age right. um because in the state of werewolf uh, in his werewolf state he's healthy and strong and there's mm. you know he doesn't have the the, uh, the ravages of old age. So it's really interesting, all that stuff. I think it's also really exciting to see a werewolf movie where werewolves celebrate their werewolf nature, their lycanthropy, and that doesn't happen. A lot of the times werewolves are sort of struggling with it or it's a curse, mm. um, whereas with the howling, besides some of the werewolves, like I know um, some of them obviously have issues <laughs> with being a werewolf, but a lot of them really embrace it. Um, mm. And the whole point is um, trying to repress it to fit in, and that's what the doctor's teachings are. But Marsha, you know... 
is opposed to that and wants to lead this rebel this inner rebellion mm. um, in the colony, which and, I think is great. But um, you know, and then you don't get that kind of werewolf celebrating their werewolfery until you get to something like Mark Nichols and Wolf, where. Mm. Um, being a werewolf actually helps you, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. To scale the corporate ladder. There's also like yeah. stuff in here clearly about Dee Wallace's uh, character's sexual repression as well, and yeah. and that kind of bubbling beneath the surface. A film that came to mind a lot watching this, and I I like this this other this other film probably a lot more. But I thought it was an interesting counterpoint was David Cronenberg's The Brood. There's something that came to mind a lot in terms of... Well, it's Est as well. Yes, the radical therapist and the, you know, and being going off to this community where they're sort of unleashing this thing that... And, yeah, it put me in in mind of a lot of that as well. Um, But I think this film opens and closes brilliantly. Like, the the opening and closing scenes are incredible. The Rob Bettine's makeup is, 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 um, is great. And yeah, and I think it's it's interesting that Dante kind of starts it as a gritty horror film because I think it's not necessarily his home court. Like he's more kind of uh, Dante drifts towards the more playfully absurd, and that sort of you know comes throughout. And I think he tones that down throughout this film. But I, I always feel that 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 conflict um, there. Yeah, I always I always satire. crack it when people talk about the humor of the film and think it, it tips it over. I don't think so at all. The, the humor is very sly and it's clever and it's a wink to the audience, right? I think it's and I think it's like American Wealth in London, which to me reads like two different films. I love that movie a lot, but I feel like that totally reads like two movies. Two wow. movies. So you got one uh, tragic romance, and then you got this, you know, you know, warts and all comedy. Um, and then you've got this werewolf thing that's happening throughout it as well. But um, The Howling, to me, is a really straightforward horror film. I, I, I was always scared of it and, you know, found it really effective as a, as a, as a quote-unquote scary film. Mm. Um, but the comedy for me was like the cleverness, the wit of it, like Psycho, you know, that kind of thing where it's kind of winking at the audience. But there's a couple of things I just want to bring up. Um, so you mentioned the werewolf design. Uh, the, there was an idea that Joe Dante and producers had, and even Rob Bottin, where they were thought about maybe even using real wolves. Oh, wow. um, so there's films like like uh, Cry of the Werewolf with Nina Fock, and she, when she morphs into a werewolf, she changes into an actual literal wolf, mm. um, a grey wolf, I, believe, I think it was. Uh, and they toyed with this idea, so they went to see this guy named George Toth, who was a wolf wrangler, and they were terrified of the wolves. <laughs> <laughs> so they met the wolves like, ah, oh, Darth, no. <laughs> so they weren't going to use these real wolves because they were terrifying, and wolves are much harder to train than any other animal, like than mm. lions even. Um, so... They opted for the makeup design, which is thankfully they did that. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting is that um, the uh, the werewolf designs went through different sort of um, uh, concepts. And one of the original per- people on it was Rick Baker, who then, of course, went on mm. to do um, American Werewolf in London. And his concepts were far different. Um, there's only really one image of the concept designs for it. And it looks more like a sort of Doberman sort of look. Um, which kind of actually looks a little bit like the Nazi werewolf mm. design that he does for the dream sequence in Werewolf of London. But, um, yeah, Werewolf in London, sorry. But, yeah, I think um, Rob's designs and the look of the werewolves, Jeff Shank's work on it is just beautiful. Like, And each werewolf looking exactly like the person that morphs into the werewolf. Mm. Like, you know, so Elizabeth uh, character looks like hers. All the characteristics are linked to their own faces. But, yeah, just stunning, stunning work. So The Howling is now available for you to rent or buy via YouTube and Google Play. In you are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with 
with Lee Gambin, Emma Westwood, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, please join us in the living room for our final uh, film turning 40 of the evening. Oh, he's just killed a girl. Did he make love to her first? I don't know. What's the difference? It makes a lot of difference. I think in order to play the game properly, we have to know what he thinks of women. Road Games was the fourth feature film directed by Richard Franklin. Outside a Melbourne hotel, a loquacious American truck driver named Quid, Stacy Keach, witnesses some strange behaviour by a man in a van who may have murdered a young woman. As Quid hauls his reefer truck full of meat across the Nullarbor to Perth, the man in the van seems to be heading in the same direction, sparking off a cat-and-mouse game, complicated by a young female hitchhiker, also an American, played by Jamie Lee Curtis who helps Quid attempt to stop this possible serial killer on, the most, on this most desolate of Australian highways. But Quid has been driving a lot and sleeping less, and who knows what is real and what is hallucination. Now, um, thank you, buddy. Now, this was my pick for tonight. Um, I know you've both seen this before. Emma, is this a film you enjoy hitching a ride with? I sure do. I love this film. Look at me. I'm just a lover of everything tonight. No hating from me. But, um, yeah, I think that we've done a very good job of uh, choosing these three films. And as an Australian film, um, uh, well, it is an Australian film. It's definitely an Australian film. It just comes, it it, it just feels odd to say that when you've got Stacey Keach in a truck picking up Jamie Lee Curtis in the middle of uh, the Nullarbor plane. Also, when it takes a remarkably short amount of time to get from Melbourne to the Nullarbor place. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, look, this movie works for me on so many levels. I think it's just really, really unique. There's something about placing Stacey Keach in that truck and having him deliver that dialogue. I think he's one of the few actors who could do it so well. Um, There's He would have... At that time, even coming to that role, he was so well known. Um, so, you know, and, there, and there's something about, as an actor, I mean, Santa Keach is actually the foremost Shakespearean actor in America. So it gives you an idea of his chops. He really knows what he's doing. And, How did I not know this? He's a Shakespeare guy. He, oh, yeah. I had oh, no God. idea. Yeah, he's played King Lear more than anyone, I think, in the US. Wow. So, um, but. And you just listen to the way he, he, for a lot of that, of this film, he is oh, essentially talking to himself. Mm. But he's talking to Boswell, his dog slash dingo. <laughs> um, uh, but there's some really, there's just some really playful aspects of the, in the storytelling. I mean, I like that cat and mouse, that kind of highway cat and mouse thing that, you know, you get with Jewel and the Hitcher as well. And, um, but this one does something a bit different. It's more, it's 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 funnier. It's actually got more humour. Mm. Um, it plays with the Australian aspects in a really interesting way. I think it's got a really sly Indigenous message about yeah, in Indigenous pr- people. The interior of the roadhouse in particular is horrifying. That pa- that panorama. Yes. That or that pans around the whole, does a 360-degree pan and has that massacre sequence painted on the walls. You know, subtle, as in it doesn't play out in the dialogue, but also even the treatment of when they say you've got a dingo and everyone wants to kill his dingo, Mm. you know, and this idea of, you know, the, the, the first Australians, if you want to call it that, the way they're treated by 
these hicks out in the outback, basically, which is an interesting thing that's played out a lot in Australian films. And I think that um, I think that Australian cinema of that of that time, and we, Paul, if I remember rightly, when The Nightingale came out, we played the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. We did, yeah, yeah. Um, to prove a point that there was a lot of things that, you know, everyone talks about being woke now. Um, I would argue that Australian art artwork, cinematic artwork, as well as other artworks, was really uh, on top of that Mm. Way before, it took a while for everyone else to catch up and possibly not many people were listening or watching because of a a whole lot of cultural cringe that was going on. Exactly. Uh, Lee, your uh, quick thoughts on on road games? I'm sorry, we've only got about a minute. I mean, I I worked on the Blu-ray release. Um, I did an essay uh, for it and I love the Hitchcockian, you know, aspect to it, you know. Um, I think that's a big selling point for me. And also, yeah, I, you know, all the visuals of the film, um, the Jarlo aspect to it as well, mm. like the way the, the kills happen and unfold, but also just the leads. You know, I'm a big fan of both Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis. I think Jamie Lee at that period, obviously doing, you know, all these films like Terror Train and Prom Night, etc. you know, after doing Halloween. Um, and this one sort of fits into that sort of realm there. Mm. Um, but also Stacey Keach, as, you know, Emma has championed, just a brilliant performer. And I love all his stuff that um, is sort of un- undersung and sort of um, goes um, without people sort of, you know, seeing it. And it's things like TV movies like um, All the Kind Strangers that I know, Emma, you're a fan of, with, you know, these hick children that keep Samantha Edgar and Stacey Keach as I, their parents. I did you, Stacey Keach, about that, Lee. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, and also just like how how um, he's kind of very similar to like actors like Tom Atkins. They've kind of got that sort of same kind of style. Mm. Uh, but yeah, no, I love Road Games. I think it's a great fun film, and also you know Franklin's work is yeah. awesome. Like honestly, I love Link. You know that's a great film. Um, uh, Psycho Two, Psycho and Two. Patrick you know, and... you're talking about the early '80s, starting off that big boom of sequels. Here, you've got a sequel to, you know, a classic from the early '60s, and it's stunning. It's a freaking awesome, really logical, brilliant follow-up. You mm. know, it's one of the really successful. It's a great idea. Uh, sequels, um, and really beautiful performances in that. But yeah, I think. Yeah, I think Road Games is a flawless film as well. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I, I think it's one of the greatest films of the Oz, the so-called Ozploitation era. It's rear window on wheels. Um, yeah. yeah um, Stacey Keach is so charismatic and, and just perfect for this character. He even looks like a truck driver. Like, he's just note perfect. Jamie Lee Curtis is at her most cool and effervescent. Um, yeah, this is – I echo everything you say and more, and I would say more, but we are running out of time. Although I do love, just quickly, the intertextuality of this film um, – um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis mentions the Boston Strangler at one point, who, of course, her father Tony played in a movie. And uh, there's, you know, she's cast, and Franklin was a Hitchcock buff and actually studied under Hitchcock. And and then, you know, obviously, Jan, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is Janet Lee's daughter, and Franklin directed Psycho 2, so it's all all up in there. It's, it's wonderful. So Road Games is now available to stream on Shudder and to rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Emma Westwood, Lee Gambon, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. 
And on ISO Spotlight and Films Turning 40, we reviewed Road Games, The Fun House, and The Howling. Um, check the program page at rrr.org.au to find out where you can find all those films to rent or buy. Join us next week for a very special episode as we welcome back guest stars Sally Christie and Isabel Papard for a spotlight on sapphic vampires inspired by the release of the new horror adaptation Carmilla. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 